EU member states that were located in Eastern European countries had some underlying comparative advantage in low-wage local services. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanefontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Mathilde Munoz is a postdoctoral fellow at UC Berkeley, where she will be joining the faculty as an assistant professor of economics. Her research focuses on the interaction between globalization and redistribution by studying how trade and migration flaws respond to international differences in personal taxes and labor market regulations, and by estimating how those flows shape inequalities within and across countries. To finish our series on the impact of trade on inequality, I asked her to tell us about her work on the impact of trade in services on workers' welfare. Hi, Clementine. Thank you for having me. So we're sort of concluding this series on globalization and inequality. And during this series, we have investigated that relationship so far only on tradable goods and services. So I first wanted to ask you, why are we missing part of the story with such focus and how you're trying to bridge that gap in the work today? Just by having this name, tradable and non-tradable, we have this intuition that maybe trade and globalization are not affecting some sectors the same way just because some jobs are more exposed to international flows compared to others. So there's always this intuition that if you're a plumber or driver, it's much harder for your company to use foreign workers. While if you work in a factory, maybe, you know, the factory can move away and then you can be affected in terms of labor market outcomes. And this is pretty kind of in opposition with the classic trade literature. So the trade literature has always said that, sure, there are some sectors that tend to be non-tradables. So the barriers to trade are so high that you cannot really have the driving service done in China and then being imported back in the U.S. But if you have free mobility of people, in a way, in a standard trade model, your exposition to globalization is the same. So in a world where Chinese workers can freely move across borders, it doesn't really matter which sector you work in. But in reality, barriers to migration are much higher compared to barriers to trade. And therefore, we have this intuition that exposure to trade is different across sectors. And so what I do in my paper is to study a type of trade policy that falls just in between migration and trade. So this policy is really focused at those non-tradable sectors. We have the intuition are less exposed to international trade. It's a European policy that has been implemented to improve international integration and make the single market deeper in a way in the EU, which is one of our objectives that we set in the 60s when we tried to create the European Union. And so what this policy says is that if you're a company in the EU, there are two things you could do if you want to benefit from international integration. You could trade goods. So if you want to import cars, you could either build the cars in France, but you could also use international integration to have part of the car's components or the entire car built in Poland. So that's kind of the first economic freedom in the EU. If you want to benefit from international integration into sectors we said were non-tradable, you could go to the other extreme and say, well, 
I want to use cleaners that are not that are maybe cheaper or that are maybe more productive because Holland is better as the, at this as compared to French workers. So why don't I just you know get some workers from Poland? I hire them in France with French contract, and then they can just do the job for me. So that's kind of free migration or ultimately free mobility of capital because maybe the Polish company can just open a subsidiary in France and hire the workers there. And so this policy I'm studying is just in between. So what it does is that it says, well, you don't have to go all the way to free migration. What you can do is just have a company, a usual company based in Poland or in Spain. This company has usual employees working in construction or in driving or in plumbing. And the company can just send those workers to the French territory. Those workers are going to do some temporary contracts. So they're going to export a service to serve a French customer. And when the service is done, then the workers are going to go either back to Poland or to another country. So in a way, this is a policy that tries to really lower those trade and migration barriers in non-tradable sectors in order to try to rip off the gains from globalization in non-tradable sectors. So you studied this specific episode of trade liberalization with this job posting policy that you described. And we already understand that there's going to be some countries that are on the receiving end, some on the sending side. One key contribution of your work is to sort of bring together micro evidence using novel data sets. I wanted to ask you, what was important when you assembled these data sets together? And what was, you know, the particular features of these data sets that were necessary for you to evaluate that policy? Yeah, so I basically needed two things. I needed first one data set that allows us to measure how big it is and how important it is compared to those other international integration channels we have in the EU. So how big posting is compared to normal trading goods or to free migration. So in order to do that, what you need is really an exhaustive data set. So not only a data set in some countries, you really want to try to cover the entire EU to really measure the magnitude of this channel. So to do this, I got very lucky in, in a way because the European Commission had collected some data on posted workers for a pretty long time period. And so what was very appealing to me in this data set was the coverage. So it was very exhaustive, so very convenient in order to say that's how many posted workers, how many flows that are going through this international integration channel, and that's, you know, 2% of GDP, and that's twice larger than international migration flows in the EU. The second thing I really needed and wanted is to, as you said, try to go one step further and understand, well, okay, maybe those flows are big, but we have this intuition that the incidence or the redistributive implications of those flows are not going to be the same, And you really want to measure also exposure to those flows in both sending and receiving countries. And even within sending and receiving countries, you want to understand which firms, which workers are either taking the opportunity to export through this policy or either kind of replaced or put in competition with other workers in receiving countries. So to do that, I try to complement this exhaustive data set by micro posting data sets in both sending and receiving countries. So here, I really had to understand which countries had those data sets because so my paper was the first one trying to study this policy. So most of the data sets I'm using in the paper actually did not exist before I wrote the paper. So I had to work a lot with many countries in order to put together those micro data. 
And the only way you could do that is to do it in countries where they already have this infrastructure, where the data is there, it's raw, and then you can work together with the authorities to make it a linkable kind of data set. So for instance, in France, they had this, they had those micro data. So they, they knew how many posted workers in a given year were entering in the French labor market. And they had a lot of information on those incoming flows. And when I started kind of working on that, they thought, oh, maybe that's an opportunity to work with you and try to make this data set we have linkable with other data set we have in France where we can observe French workers. So we worked together with the French authorities in order to link the information on posting services purchases with French firms and French workers in the French territory. So in the paper, I did that for four main countries two receiving and two sending countries. So the two main receiving countries are Belgium and France. Those are high-wage top importers of posting services. And the sending countries, in my paper, are Portugal and Luxembourg. So before we dig into the you know, more granular effects of that reform on non-tradable services, we first want to know whether there were any meaningful effects of the legislation on trade. And I wanted to ask you, like, in sort of the intuition of how you do measure that and what were your empirical approach to evaluate the overall effect of that reform, if there was any bite of that reform? The busting policy was always in place in the EU, so it's been implemented in the 60s. But the big changes that occurred in the EU was that this policy was expanded to new member states when they joined the EU. And so why is it important for international integration in the EU? It is important because those new member states that were located in Eastern European countries had some underlying comparative advantage in low-wage local services. So those are countries with low level of wages, low level of taxes, kind of a sectoral composition that is more skewed towards, as I was saying, construction, driving, and all of those services. So they had those underlying comparative advantage in services and in a way, expanding the policy to them, so lifting the trade barriers into sectors could lead to very big increase in the flows. And that's what you see in the data. So in two words, the identification strategy to understand all liberalizing posting changes international trade in services in the EU is to exploit the staggered liberalization of the reform. So staggered means that the posting policy was not liberalized the same year for the same destination countries. So to give you an example, Polish posted workers could go to France first and could only go to Germany some years later. So you can compare the flows from Poland, let's say, versus Portugal, that was already a member state, to France versus Germany, because France opened earlier as opposed to Germany. And then you have an additional layer, which is that those low-wage countries did not enter in the EU in the same year, meaning that they did not gain access to the policy the same year. So you could also compare the differential evolution of Poland versus Portugal to France versus Germany compared to what happens for flows from Romania that did not gain access to the policy the same year. So you have a lot of variation across origin and destination countries that allow you to control for, let's say, demand shocks in origin and destination countries in order to really isolate the effect of the policy on those flows. And then you can understand what was the change in imports and exports of the services in the EU caused by the expansion. And you can also understand 
all this liberalization interacted with the liberalization of free migration. So free migration was also liberalized for those countries. And then you can understand with a posting kind of substitutes for migration or whether it adds to overall integration in the EU. So what is the sort of big picture effect of this job posting policy at the EU level, at the aggregate level? So at the aggregate level, the numbers you, you can have in mind are that roughly 2% of EU GDP is traded through posting. So it's pretty big. It's equivalent to one third of overall trade in services. It's almost as large as trading what we call customer, non-customer facing services. So where we usually focus on ICT and technology when we want to think about trading services, actually trading construction services or driving services are as large in the EU. And if you want to compare the magnitude of those flows to other economic freedom, well, posting is roughly twice larger compared to international migration flows each year. So in terms of flows, it's very big. In terms of stocks, it accounts for roughly 15% of the migrant working age population in the EU. So the contribution of posting to total trading factors in the EU is very big. So that's the first kind of you know, overview of the magnitude. The second really important thing is that those flows have really increased since 2004. So they were very small before. And since the enlargement and the expansion of the policy to new member states, the number of posted workers have really increased. So we went from less than 300,000 before 2004 to almost 2 million and a half in current years. So it's really a very steep increase in this integration channel. We get a sense that the policy had pretty large impact at the aggregate level. What's really fascinating in your work is that you can look at the consequences on workers themselves and in the labor market in each of these places. So could you walk us through this overall effect in the sending and the receiving countries and what we can learn in terms of unequal gain of this policy? This policy, and in particular, the expansion of the policy to low-wage countries with a comparative advantage in non-tradable services, led to more exports for low-wage sending countries and more import for receiving countries. And so the next natural question is, well, what happened in those labor markets, as you said? So if you start with receiving high-wage countries, what I find is that the higher competition in non-tradable sectors or in those sectors that were more exposed to uh, posting competitions led to some decrease in employment for domestic workers. So domestic workers working in the more exposed sectors and working in the more exposed labor markets saw a differential decrease in their employment opportunities compared to other workers working in more sheltered labor markets or more sheltered sectors. So you have some adjustment for employment for domestic workers, but you have no difference in domestic wages. Okay, so that's important. In the EU context, the entire adjustment to the globalization of the supply shock really occurred through the employment margin, not the kind of wage margin. And what's interesting is that this effect you see at the kind of local labor market level is exactly similar if you look at what happens at exact firms that started importing posted workers. 
So in those firms, when a firm in France or in Belgium starts to import posted workers or purchases so foreign services provided by those workers, what this firm does is that it decreases domestic employment as it increases for the employment of foreign workers, but the wages of incumbents stay the same. So you really have this idea of that the adjustment margin is really through employment, not necessarily wages. The second important thing is that not all employment losses translate to unemployment because you also have some responses at the labor force margin. So it could be that domestic workers in France are retiring earlier or just pursuing their studies and not necessarily going out of the, the employment in the unemployment kind of bucket. One explanation of the substitution between domestic workers and posted workers is the wage differences or the wage discrimination between domestic and posted workers. So what you see in the data, you can really compare the wages of posted workers and the wages of French workers in the same receiving firm doing the same job. So you can really kind of have an idea of what's the wage markdown that posted workers may suffer as compared to comparable domestic workers. And here what you see is a very important wage gap. So you have a 30% wage penalty if you are a posted workers compared to a similar French workers in the same firm, even if you control for demographics or hours of work and so on and so forth. And this wage penalty that posted workers face is twice as large as the wage penalty that domestic outsourced workers face in the same firm. So then you gain the intuition that the posting policy is really this channel for wage equalization or, you know, lowering wages that goes around potential wage rigidities at the receiving firm level. And in a way, it allows those foreign firms to locate even lower in the wage ladder compared to domestic temporary employment agencies. So it gives receiving firms an alternative option where they can lower wages even more for those workers that are hired in more segmented labor markets. So that's the picture for the receiving country. Employment effects, no effect for the wages of French workers, but a significant wage penalty for posted workers as compared to the domestic workers. So there is some, what trade economies really call gains from trade. So for trade economies, the fact that you can now, you know, buy a similar service, let's say a cleaning service, 30% cheaper as compared to what you could before is really a gains from trade. In the view of the trade economies, maybe for labor economies, it's more related to wage discrimination or bargaining power in the labor market. But in a way, you can see that this wage discrimination was really allowed by this alternative labor market arrangement channel. What you may want to understand is all those potential surplus, so this potential 30% wage gain, is also shared between posted workers and their firm in origin countries. So the paper then zooms in into the export and wage gains in Sandy countries. And here, what you can see is that the posting policy really means that those firms that we thought were sheltered from export opportunities because they're doing construction services or they're doing training services are able to experience very large and persistent gains once they access foreign markets through posting. So those gains are large in magnitudes. You're thinking about the 30% employment gains, 50% increase in sales once you sell your services abroad. But I think what's the most striking is that those gains are unequally shared between capital owners and workers in sending countries. So one implication of the policy is that 
because you are asking that those foreign workers remain hired by their firm in the origin country, you kind of have to allow this firm to also intermediate the potential wage gains for those foreign workers. In standard immigration, the Portuguese worker would just move to France and be hired by the French firm, and then the bargaining would be directly between the worker and the French firm. Now you are adding this additional layer, which is that the foreign firm in Portugal is actually intermediating the wage gain to workers. And so what you see is that while this policy was able to increase trading factors in the EU because it increased migration and trade, what it also meant is that it allowed firms, in particular firms in exporting countries, to capture part of the producer surplus from immigration. So those firms are deriving a lot of profit gains because they are selling the services to other firms in high-wage countries, but they are keeping part of the gains. They're not giving all the gains back to the workers, therefore they increase their profits, basically. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to explain one technical aspect of their work. We've seen over the seasons that empirical work in trade uses a lot of uh, Baltic type instruments or sort of movements uh, of workers and firms and in with a two-stage square approach. And I wanted to ask you maybe to give us a broad intuition behind the recent tests in the two-stage least square models with exposure designs that are used in this literature? And if you could give us one example and why it is important in your setting. Yeah, so there's one part in the paper where I'm using some a similar instrument, what we call instrument. So I guess in my paper, it's a bit closer to the migration literature that has used this kind of enclave design. So the idea is very simple. You know that posting inflows in France have increased a lot between 2004 and 2015. It was 0.2% of total French employment before 2004. It was more than 1% of total French employment in 2015. But obviously you face this endogeneity problem that some places in France imported more posted workers after 2004, not because more posted workers were available, but maybe they had some local demand shock. So maybe in some places you needed to build more houses, so therefore you needed more uh, foreign workers. If you're only using those observed differences after the reform, one issue is that those local shock, the reason why you're using more posted workers after 2004, can also force you to hire more domestic workers. So you have kind of this bias that you want to get rid of. So what I do in the paper is to use the spatial distribution of posting before the reform in order to predict how much you're going to be affected by the nationwide supply shock. Okay, And so this instrument tells you, well, in this given French province, we see that there were a bit more posting workers when posting flows were very restricted from low wage countries. So it means that this province should be more exposed to the future flows as compared to others. So that's the basic intuition. Now, there has been a lot of literature on potential problems that can come from many sources, two type of, let's say, threats that have been underlined by the recent literature that could be, that are relevant in my context. The first one is trying to understand whether exposure is really kind of exogenous to past and future trends. And so it's always very hard to test for exclusion restriction in <laughs> IVs. But I think one appeal of my setup is that I can look at difference in differences. So I can kind of check that the, this predicted exposure was not correlated with different employment trends 
before the reform. And so you can really see that it's really the shock that is triggering the change in employment because before the shock, before the reform, you do not see any differential evolution in employment before the shock. So I think many recent papers on exposure designs suggest that researchers should perform parallel trends or pre-trends analysis if they can, if they have the data for. The second threat that has been emphasized by this literature is that when you're trying to use or to instrument for, let's say, exposure in terms of total population or employment, like you want to say, okay, I want to predict how much migrants in total population of California is more affected than migrants in total population of Florida. And I'm going to instrument using, let's say, you know, 40 years ago, migration flows in total population of California and total population of Florida. One issue with this kind of instrument is that your denominator, in a sense, is the same in the second and first stage. So you could kind of have a spurious correlation. You could have a fake correlation in your instrument just because you're using the same type of denominator. So here, the test that has been suggested by the literature is very simple. You should always check that the strength of your instrument does not come from the denominator. So you should try to use as an instrument the pure inflows of migrants or posted workers or any other kind of flows you're trying to predict while controlling for initial population or initial employment in the second stage. And that way, you can really check that the strength of your instrument is not coming from spurious correlation because you are dividing you know, your instrument and your endogenous variable by the same thing, but really by this economic intuition you have that it's coming from the flows. So going back to our sort of initial question, which is, is the liberalization of tradable or non-tradable the same? Do they have the same consequences? You basically try to quantify the efficiency gains by calibrating a model of trades. Without getting too much into the details of the model, I wanted to ask you, what did you find in terms of your uh, quantification exercise and how does it compare to standard trade models? You know, it's coming back to the technicality of the work and this question you had, I think one big limitations of difference in differences or the micro analysis I'm doing in most of the paper is that you cannot really identify, let's say, the constant or the aggregate, you know, maybe everyone's productivity is shifting up or maybe there are some aggregate gains in the French labor market. You will never be able to identify with a reduced form comparison between more or less exposed provinces. So in order to do that, you really need a model. And so what I find in that model, which is very simplified again, is that the posting policy has positive aggregate efficiency gains, but those gains tend to be smaller compared to standard trade in goods liberalization. And so the reason why those efficiency gains are small is because currently the consumption share of foreign services remains small. So it is true that those services that are traded through posting represent roughly 2% of EU GDP, but that's still kind of small if you think about the overall labor market. So that's really the intuition behind the differences of efficiency gains between trading on tradables and standard trade. That being said, the reason why potentially those flows or those consumption shares are small is because the regulation we put on trading on tradables are much larger compared to trading goods. When a firm located in Poland is selling a car to French customers, the Polish firm doesn't have to worry about French minimum wages. Whereas when a Polish firm is exporting Polish plumbers to the French territory, this firm has to comply with the minimum wage in France. So in a way, this regulation we implemented because we thought 
not having this minimum wage policy would really impose too much competition on domestic workers. But this regulation means that by nature, we are restricting the size of the flows and we are restricting those wage differences between domestic French workers and French plumbers. So I tell you it's a 30% difference. But if we didn't have this minimum wage policy, well, what's the average wage in Poland is around 4 euros against 12 euros in France. So the, the difference would be much larger. And so I think that's important to understand that what matters to understand globalization and its distributional consequences is not only the economic forces, it's also the regulation we are going to implement and to impose on those flows. And I think the Boston policy really illustrates the social and economic trade-offs that you face when you want to integrate labor markets in those sectors in particular, but that could apply to trading goods. So that's exactly where I was thinking about asking you what you thought for the consequences of trade policies and labor regulation in general in light of these results. And also, if you think there are important research avenues that should be explored more and you would like to discuss and think about in the future in this area. In a way, this policy takes the standard trade model very seriously. It tells you, well, trade and migration are the same. We're trying to import foreign labor that is paid at lower wages compared to domestic labor. And there's one way to do it, which is to put a factory in Poland. And there's another way to do it, which is to have the Polish workers come to France. But then it forces us to think about what exactly is trade. Is trade about only differences in productivity or knowledge or the way we are able to build cars in a Polish factory as opposed to a French factory? No, trade is also about, let's say, the equilibrium wages in those countries that are determined by initial endowments, by a lot of other factors, and also by regulation. And so I think one of the big implications of this work is to say that Imposing labor market regulation in trade flows, being trading on tradables or trading goods, is going to naturally restrict the size of those flows. But even restricting the size of the flow, you're going to create some distributional consequences in both sending and receiving countries. So in a way, it tells you that you could liberalize this further, but then you would have much more or much bigger redistributive consequences, or you could just regulate it more, making it almost like a migration policy, meaning yeah, really you cannot really discriminate between domestic and foreign workers because they have the same labor market regulation in destination country. And that way, maybe you will improve the outcomes of the posted workers that are still posted to France, but then you will also restrict the flows. And that's always the balance you need to find when you want to think about globalization. You need to think about how the regulation are going to change the flows, so the state of international integration, but also are they going to change within country redistributive equilibrium that also matter for, you know, support for globalization and all, all of those other issues that have been studied, which leads me to my second answer. In terms of avenue for future work, I think trying to understand what is really driving international trade flows. Is it differences in variety, productivity, or is it just fiscal dumping and differences in regulation seems to be key. It's been a very important focus of the literature in the 90s and the 2000s, mostly theoretical, but we actually have very few empirical evidence on how much taxes or labor market regulation can shape international trade flows. And this seems to be very important at a time where it seems that support for globalization 
may be dependent on those factors. So maybe people do not perceive it at the same if a comparative advantage is coming from lower regulation as opposed to better knowledge. And so it seems that's something we want, really want to learn more about. We really want to understand about what's deeper, what's the, what's the determinants of trade and how does labor market regulation and taxes and the way you treat labor and workers is really important to understand international competition today. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if you could maybe share a recommendation with our listeners of a book, a movie or anything that you found interesting and you would want to talk about. Well, I think one book that has always inspired me and I think has inspired a lot of the research I'm doing today and I always recommend to my students is a book wrote by Danny Rodrigue in 2000. So it's, it's pretty old, but still very accurate. It's called Has Globalization Gone Too Far? It's really a book about those issues we were discussing. What are the political economy trade-offs when thinking about globalization? What are the normative aspects we want to think about when we think about trade policy or migration policy or all those policies we are going to implement in order to integrate our economies? So it's a very thought-provoking book. It has a lot of uh, non-intuitive ideas. It's really built in opposition, I believe, to the idea that were developed in the 90s for free trade and all of this policy that were implemented thinking that's the avenue. And it seems that it's very relevant to think about international trade policy today. Thank you so much, Mathilde, for sharing this with us. And thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Clementine. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Vanifanter in Toronto. I want to thank Aisha Philippe for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.